from Evanston, Illinois, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Democrat Paul Vallis, Republican Chris Roebling, Democrat Roberto Montano, Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago, and Republican Kenton McCarthy, as well as special guest Andrew Challenger, an outsourcing expert, and we'll be talking about turmoil in the American workplace and the changing face of the American economy. Thank you very much. Our program tonight coming from our new home base at the studios of WCGO Radio in Evanston, Illinois. That is in the fashionable uh, suburban Evanston, Illinois. That's just uh, the first suburb north of Chicago, if you're not familiar with it. And again, it's great to have you with us. 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number. We are live on radio. We're also live on Facebook. And uh, as was the case last week, uh, right at this moment, we're opposite the President of the United States who is having a uh, coronavirus update. And so uh, you are privy to what he's saying more than I am. So if you're listening to us with one ear and listening to the president or watching him with the other ear or eyes, uh, as the program unfolds this evening, let us know what news is coming out of that press conference because we would like to hear it from you. And again, we then can offer uh, instant analysis from our uh, listeners and viewers from coast to coast and around the world. And again, uh, uh, we, we welcome, uh, we'll begin this evening with, uh, uh, with a, a good Democrat and a good Republican. And uh, they all, they, they love America. They want to see uh, the American uh, success story continue. And uh, we're going to talk about a variety of issues with them. I want to begin with Paul Vallis, who once upon a time was head of the Chicago public school system. Then he uh, uh, did things uh, in, in in the wake of uh, Katrina uh, in New Orleans, also worked in Philadelphia, as noted around the country, ran for mayor of the city of Chicago, and uh, also uh, lieutenant uh, governor of the state of Illinois. Uh, was unsuccessful, but he certainly ran for that office. So, Paul, let me begin with you, because I want to talk about the issue of education, because school has been out. In, in many parts of the United States for, uh, for, for several weeks now, what, what short-term and long-term impact is this going to have on, on education and test scores and, and a person's uh, you know, career? I think it's going to have a great impact, particularly on low-income children. Uh, the poor schools do not have access to online learning, have few of the online learning resources that many of the more affluent school districts do. Uh, and obviously, you know, children that are being raised in single parent households, uh, 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 sometimes operating from an economic development standpoint, from an economic standpoint on a, you know, on a marginalized existence. So those, those young people are not going to have the supports in the homes that perhaps more affluent families uh, can afford to provide for their children. So clearly there's going to be a disadvantage. And most of the schools in this country were really not equipped to provide the type of online uh, education, remote learning uh, opportunities. Is this, is this and I, I want to bring in Chris Roebling, our Republican. Chris, is this another example of government, whether it's federal government, state government, or municipal government, uh, with what we're trying to do in this patchwork response uh, to this uh, in the education community? Is this just another example of something, uh, an American institution that was just not ready to be hit with this type of devastating uh, action? Yes, I think that's right. I think that we've known for, oh, a good, you know, 45 years that there was a possibility of a 
very serious flu pandemic. It's been warned about repeatedly. Uh, many administrations have come and gone, have tried to raise the specter of just how debilitating such an outbreak would be to society. And um, many calls for preparedness, both from Democrats and Republicans, have gone unheeded. Uh, at the same time, I think um, folks are very pressed in education for a lot of different reasons. I think you know, that's another whole conversation, but uh, it's tough to ask local school boards to prepare for something that might never happen while they're in their term of office. So I think we have to face the very vexing question of how do you prepare when you don't know what might come? And that's exactly where schools have been. Uh, and and it, it creates the inequitable situation uh, to which Paul refers. Paul, would, would you agree with that? And, and, and what is it that we can do now right. to play catch up so that when this thing comes back again, and if it does, it's according to Dr. Fauci, it's likely to come back. We are better prepared. Well, let me point out that I, I recently did a Wall Street Journal article about basically remote learning. And there's absolutely no reason why we can't mobilize to provide all schools with the capacity to provide remote learning. But it is not cost prohibitive. For example, even from a technology standpoint, if, if you took the approach of standardizing the, the technology, strategic sourcing and leasing the technology, you could put you could literally equip every household and every child. Uh, with the tech, with the equipment needed, now they're still acclimating yourself to remote learning, et cetera. But just from an equipment standpoint, it's not cost prohibitive. There just has not been a, a push to do that. And there's an opportunity here. Now, clearly, we need to do things short term. We need to provide, uh, 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 schools need to provide uh, parents with with online educational options. They need to try to get the technology into the homes as quickly as possible. They need to get the internet providers to provide free Wi-Fi, et cetera. But the point that I want to make is the federal government is about to give $13 billion in total one money to school districts. That's about an 80% increase. There is no reason on God's good earth that we can't prepare for the next pandemic, for the next earthquake, for the next hurricane. And, you know, I've been in all of those yeah. by building the type of remote learning uh, infrastructure to not only address the issue of, of these type of long-term closures of schools, but more importantly, to have the type of technology infrastructure that can support regular instruction. But we, we had a situation last week where uh, in, in Chicago, which you know, uh, there was an issue of, uh, th there was a large number of computers that were going to be handed out uh, uh, to uh, students and teachers. And in many of these homes, though, again, the low-income homes, they didn't have internet service. So again, do, do we start with just broadband capacity and making sure that that uh, that 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 you know internet service is is this a right for Americans to have now absolutely and 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 this is where government can intervene i mean there's no reason on god's good earth that certain industries could not have been mobilized and they've been mobilized so many times in the past have dealt with the issue of uh manufacturing masks or basically doing the ventilators and things. i mean korea south korea had their first had their first infection the same day we did, and look at look at what's happened in South Korea. They've I don't want to say they've eradicated the problem. That doesn't mean it won't reemerge, but but they're experiencing a fraction of the problems that we have. So the point is, we can do that on the educational side. There is no reason why internet providers cannot provide every household 
uh, with Wi-Fi. And in the rural areas, you know, and we did this down in Haiti after the earthquake. You can equip vehicles like buses to be kind of like these these uh, localized, uh, you know, internet distribution centers. I'm using the technology. I'm I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. referring to it the proper way, way, but there's no reason why you can't even reach out to to uh, schools and school districts in the remote areas to give them Wi-Fi internet access. But in but in the when we come back, we'll obviously talk about uh, the basic need for the technology. But on one end of the technology, there is the teacher who's trying to use technology to teach something, whatever the subject may be. And uh, in many cases at the moment, people are trying, parents are trying to teach their kids at home. I want to talk about that when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. 1 800 723 8289. We're talking with Paul Vallis and Chris Roebling, and we were talking about the uh, the problems in American education and uh, how it is going, how it is being devastated by what's happening right now. Um, yet, some parents uh, who are listening to this program, they may live in states where um, maybe the local uh, school system does not have uh, enough set up ready to go for using online teaching. And so many of them, as there are many people in this country who homeschool their children, uh, are there some basic things that you could suggest to parents listening to the program, Paul, who let's say they have a, a, a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old at home. Uh, they're going crazy because their school hasn't given them the lessons to learn. How do you begin teaching, you know, as a parent to a child during this period, which in many jurisdictions, they're not going back to school this year, or at least this this semester? Well, first of all, hopefully, hopefully school districts have been communicating uh, uh, the online educational uh, support programs that are already out there. I mean, you could literally Google them. They're all over the place. But hopefully one of the things that the schools have been doing is the schools have been kind of filtering. Uh, the the uh, programs that are quality programs and they've been making recommendations. Many states, for example, have 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 begun to invest in online education, creating their own virtual schools. I think the state defunded the Illinois virtual school this year. They're actually up there operating on their own. But most districts who are worth their salt will uh, should have, and I know most of them, at least many of them have, have been sending out information to parents 
not only giving the materials that they can use to to engage their children, but also giving them access to online uh, educational support resources. Chris, you you have been a critic of public education for a long time. Uh, is it possible that uh, this can be a learning lesson where public education could get better? And I also want to expand the discussion by talking about higher education. Uh, could it be that that colleges are going to learn that you don't have to have large campuses with huge buildings anymore? Uh, you know, look, I, I'm the beneficiary of some of the finest public education in the United States. I, I went to New Trier. I uh, got a lot from that experience. And my concern about public education ever since has not been about public education. It's been about the forces acting upon the institutions that are charged to deal, or I'm sorry, to deliver public education in the neighborhoods. And um, uh, so so that's an entire conversation. I I think that your point, uh, Bruce, and I I think that Paul's intimate familiarity with the um, overcoming of obstacles to create platforms for distance and remote learning um, make... uh, Take note of rapid evolution in how people are learning today, and I know this is anathema in some quarters. But everybody from from uh, Prager University uh, five minute videos to folks who are taking entire advanced degrees mm-hmm. uh, from accredited schools online. Um, I've been fortunate in my work to visit um, the Middle East and a little bit in the Orient and certainly in Europe and Latin America. And I would say that there's a ferment going on in the delivery of education. Um, and, and yes, this event, uh, which for instance, my, my son, Charlie, came home from Granada, Spain, and he's now doing all of his classes with his Spanish professors over the internet from Roscoe Village. And uh, it's new to them, uh, the professors in Spain. It's new to the kids who were enjoying, as you can imagine, every moment that they were in Spain, yeah. Granada, Cordoba, et cetera. But it's, the, these are the kinds of advances that are going on Paul will, uh, wanna, across wanna, the field. I want to get Paul's response because at the college level, and you've worked primarily uh, in, in, in K through, uh, through 12, but Paul, in your in in your experience, do we have um, do we have American teachers unions standing in the schoolhouse door saying we don't want long distance learning? I think in the past there's been a lot of resistance, but but I talked to a, a very prestigious um, uh, university that will remain unnamed uh, uh, um, about the issue of remote learning. And even they've ad- admitted that the faculty is a lot more amenable to now, you know, l- learning how to teach online and things like that. Look, um, next to local property taxes, student loans are probably the the second biggest item that's, that's destroying the middle class in this country. I, I saw a statistic the other day, not the other day, it was actually about a year ago where they talked about for the first time in history, American middle class have percentage of the population is smaller, that we're no longer 
you know, uh, uh, a country, a major uh, uh, country with a predominant, predominant middle class. And they talked about two things, local taxes like property taxes and student loans. Mm -hmm. There's no students, graduate, uh, graduate students, undergraduate students and four universities, community colleges, they can, you know, they don't have to go to these big monolithic university campuses and or for that matter, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, these residential campuses, they can learn online. Grand Canyon, uh, you know, and, and I'm not suggesting, you know, I'm not drawing parallels, but Grand Canyon, a classic example, they have 17,000 students on campus in in Arkansas or, or in Arizona, and they have 65,000 students online. Bradley University is now dramatically expanding their offerings online. Harvard, uh, if you want to take courses and get a degree from Harvard, uh, you can do it and live in California. So the technology is there to provide for for, on, for remote learning and just not remote learning where it's self-paced learning where you're doing the courses uh, yourself but but and it's self-paced but there's no reason why you can't have online virtual classrooms k-12 do you see chris in in addition to teachers unions that was my question to paul do you see other entities other power structures that are going to fight this in the future because you know they're 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 a member of the uh, of the alumni association from from Harvard or Stan or, or Stanford and and frankly uh, they give a lot of money to the schools the schools you know celebrate them in many ways but uh, is is the power of the alumni association going to come down and 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 squash some of these uh, expansion uh, efforts uh, post uh, you know. Uh, coronavirus? I don't think so. I, I think that um, there are forerunners and there are late adap adapters. And the forerunners would include things like Khan Academy, uh, things like, uh, you know, Paul is referring to Grand Canyon. He's referring to um, uh, Bradley. Uh, you know, we've got uh, Purdue University right across the state line and West Lafayette, Indiana, the president down there, former governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, done a mm -hmm. phenomenal job. He actually bought, uh, I forget exactly which platform. I think he bought Kaplan. I'm not sure. But he bought yeah. So, so, so there are folks out there who know, and I want to make this point. Um, I have been involved in K-12 education in the Middle East. And, and I will tell you that if you want to solve the problems of the world, get into K-12 education in a big systemic way. Uh, you know, the teacher unions are uh, they are now essentially, in my humble opinion, I don't ask Paul to comment because he's got too many relationships, but you know, the, the teachers unions have saddled us with the problems that have led to the property taxes that folks, for instance, in Illinois are fleeing by going to Indiana, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Florida, and other Wyoming let low me, tax Let states. me interrupt for a moment and ask Paul, uh, because again, you do have a lot of relationships with with you know with unions and non unions around the country. My my question to you <laughs> is: good, some bad. Is it is it uh, has it become too easy to blame unions for uh, the problems that we have in public education? Well, as you know, as someone who created the nation's only one hundred percent school choice district, which is New Orleans, where all the schools are independent right. charter schools and they even have right. vouchers. Uh, 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 I'm, uh, I'm not going to blame the unions, uh, in, in, entirely for the, uh, there's been resistance, but I've never found, uh, 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 union leadership. Maybe it's because of the relationships that I've had with unions. So I've had to deal with on a 
on a, on a one-on-one basis, but I've always found them to be receptive. There's no reason why K to 12, I mean, the future is in remote learning. And, and you have to understand the opportunity that's here. If you want to close the achievement gap, if you want to provide poor children with access to the instructional resources and supports, you can do it via technology. Well, if you build a system of remote learning where you can literally have remote instruction to deal with pandemics, then you have a system during normal times that can educate children who, for health reasons or disciplinary reasons, can't be in school. Or for that matter, you can use remote learning to increase the instructional day, to increase the instructional year. And there's nothing that closes the achievement gap faster than additional instructional time on task. So there's an opportunity here. Go ahead, Bruce. Bruce. May May I speak on that? Uh, I couldn't agree more with uh, esteemed colleague uh, Paul Vallis, and I'll tell you why. I had the privilege of um, my, my group was brought on board to help with curriculum and a lot of activities related to the first female-only STEM school in Saudi Arabia to be located in Mecca. Now, sadly, after MBS came in, there have been some bumps in the road, and we're not sure where that project is going to go. But we got very deep into the planning for this. And I think the future is a lot more like the Khan Academy and uh, Mm -hmm. Prager University. You're going to have modules and you're going to have, see, the schools have got two different axes. They've got sort of a competency axis and then they've got a social emotional axis. And then you've got a third dimension to those two, which is age and age group. So the whole idea. I want to give you an opportunity to follow up on that, Chris. We do have to break. 1-800-723-8029 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border border and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway back live from Evanston, Illinois shortly. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. Thanks very much for joining us. We're talking with Paul Vallis, who once upon a time headed the Chicago public school system, uh, also did a lot of work in Philadelphia, and also in the wake of uh, uh, Katrina, he uh, headed up the uh, uh, education effort in New Orleans, and also uh, Chris Roebling, a longtime commentator, conservative Republican commentator on this program. They join us this evening, and again, in just a few moments, we're going to be talking about some of the uh, the loss of jobs around the country, but again, uh, we continue with, with Paul and uh, Chris. The president in his press conference, by the way, that's still going on, is, is dealing with coronavirus. 
He's talking about all the things that are being done, uh, uh, the spreading of the ventilators around the country, uh, what's in the what's in the supply chain, what's not in the supply chain, and responding to uh, to those that have been critical, including, I would say, right at the top of the list is Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. And again, he singled out Pritzker by name uh, earlier uh, in the last hour. And uh, Chris Roebling, you're putting a, a thumbs up to that. Uh, uh, but I, w- I want to ask both of you. I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. Yeah, I want to uh, make Chris, my point. <laughs> ma- make, make, make the point, but then I want to hear from Paul as well, because you both have yeah. spent a lot of time dealing yeah. with politicians. So what's your reaction, Chris? And I want to get Paul's response as well. Sure. What, what on, on Trump or do, can I finish no, my curriculum? Pritzker. No, yeah. on Pritzker. Oh, dang. Well, you, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll come guys, back to that, but I want to. I, I, well, first of all, I want to say I've been joined by Rufus. So Rufus is here. Okay, good. <laughs> it says hello. And then number two, I want to say um, that uh, these guys are crazy. I mean, why are they arguing with each other? I don't think anybody in the entire country is looking for their public officials to spat with each other. When people are dying in the, you know, most abject, you know, most of these people are going to end up dying. They're going to asphyxiate. Paul, why, why do you think, why do you think Governor Pritzker is, is emerging as sort of the poster child for, uh, uh, complaints around the country? I think it's his ambition to be noted in the Democrat, in the national democratic party and to get some kind of foothold at okay. the, uh, federal level and what he anticipates. I want to hear, be, I uh, want to hear Paul Vallis's assessment uh, of that same question. Well, first of all, I, I, you know, I agree with Chris. Let me point out that there's a, you know, people, whether we like it or not, we have to adjust to Trump. He's a transitional, he's a transactional figure. And when you attack him, he's going to try to punish you. And, and, and look at, look at Newsom there's uh, in California. There's something like 71 lawsuits that the, that the state has filed that the state has filed against the federal government because, you know, Trump, whether it's auto, automotive emissions and things mm-hmm. like that. But yet he has kept the rhetoric down and he's focused on trying to get things through Trump by trying to avoid being confrontational or trying to, to get into his crosshair, so to speak. Cuomo is really trying to do the same thing. You know, it's really interesting when Cuomo, listen to Cuomo, when he, when, he, when, the, when the federal government delivers something to him, he always mentions Trump. When he wants to criticize the federal government, he mentions the administration. So, you know, at some point, we've really got to focus on trying to find a way to get what we need without basically building up more barriers. Uh, the governor has said, however, and he's not the only governor that said he thinks it is primarily the federal government's responsibility uh, to to have the necessary equipment in place. You you both mentioned earlier in the program that it's very difficult for politicians, whenever wherever and and whatever party they're they're with, to plan too much money and to spend too much money on planning for something that may or may not happen. So in this particular case, um, is the governor right, Chris, and uh, is the president right? Is this a, is this a case where both politicians are right? We're seeing your nose now. Whatever you've just done. The, the American people are listening around the world have just gone up your nostril. We Sorry about see, that. We didn't um, see anything okay, unusual so my, up there, but go ahead. My my two cents. Uh, I think I think taxpayers everywhere want to hear people say, "Here's what we're doing today. Here's what we're doing tomorrow." Where the top priority is to save lives and to reduce the impact of this pandemic. 
And everything other than that, whether it's from Trump at the White House or, or um, uh, Cuomo in Albany or Pritzker in Springfield, everything other than that, I think, is posturing and it's not helpful. When it's is not it, helpful. When is it right? And I want to I get Paul to respond to this. When is it, when is it appropriate, Paul? And is the media the most appropriate uh, complainer on this case? Is when you have a situation in the last couple of weeks, there were masks that were sent to Alabama that had rot in them. They were totally wasted. There were things, allegedly ventilators, that were sent to uh, 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 California that were that were outdated, uh, and and they expired in in two thousand and fifteen. Whose responsibility? It seems to me that before you send something out, you should make sure that what you're sending out is not expired. Look, and, and likewise, you know, if something expired in 2015 or 2010, which which is the case with some of the ventilators, someone in another administration, the previous administration, was did not do their job in making sure that expiration dates meant that what they had in their stockpile wasn't good. I mean, that, that's that's not Trump's fault, it, it, but but it's somebody's fault. There's there's somebody who's got a name. Who was responsible well, okay, for that? Well, this is got, somebody look, working now. This is the problem. We're in the middle of a crisis, and we're trying to figure out whose fault it is. Yes. I mean, the bottom line is, we were look. We Here was my question, Paul. My question is, what does does the media? Is, is this a rightful question to be asked by the media? Because I agree with you. I don't want partisan finger pointing here. But what I'm just saying is, this is common sense. If I'm a taxpayer and I've just learned that $2 trillion are being used to, 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 to get as much equipment out as possible, that uh, what, what happens is that at some point people are saying, well, why are they sending old equipment? And that's because somebody somewhere, a government official look, somewhere, screwed up. Look, They, you they know, don't want that to happen again. Well, look, look. Every Good single luck. That I've taken over has has been a financial disaster. Yet I never once criticized my predecessor because my job wasn't to look back. My job was to look forward. Look, you know, look, you know, I think, you know, I don't think the media, you know, I think to a certain extent the media has to a degree been unfair when in every press conference uh, you ask him the same thing. Admit to responsibility. Admit you were late. Admit you didn't respond. Admit you're, you know, that that you uh, close this office or close that office. I'm not suggesting that any of these questions are not legitimate because they are. Because the things that Trump failed to do, he clearly failed to do. But what is that going to accomplish now uh, except provoke a right. reaction? So to answer me, your question, how do you approach it? There's got to somebody's got to be the adult in the room. And the problem is all too often there aren't any adults in the room. Chris. Yeah, Bruce, I, I want to say, you asked, when is it appropriate to ask that question? Yeah. That is what, as a former logistics planner for the United States Navy, I'm going to tell you that it's called the after action report. Why? Because today we got to get X uh, ventilators to Y location. And sitting here today, as Paul points out, you know, going from the, the windshield to the rearview mirror, say, oh, well, the, the, the the ventilators aren't in the right warehouse or they're going to the wrong warehouse or they, you know, whatever. Something happened six years ago. Nobody cares. People care. Are you doing right. something today that'll save lives tomorrow? That's it. 
Chris, you articulated it so much better than me. We have, we have a caller, a uh, couple of callers. Let's go to Edward listening to us uh, on WCGO in uh, Chicago. Go ahead, Edward. Yeah, and Chris, uh, maybe uh, in the next hour you can comment about the captain on uh, Roosevelt. But uh, my point on education is I think uh, we need to educate more people on learning a trade. You know how you have this distillery uh, making uh, hand sanitizers. Yep. Mm-hmm. or maybe somebody in the fabric industry making face masks. Yeah. I think that's something that we need to steer our young people to learn a trade so that way they can be multi-talented. Paul, yeah, there's, response. There's no doubt. I'm going to respond really quick. You know, Crystal Ray is, is, a, great high, is a great model. The Crystal Ray High School, the kids not only are going to high school, uh, four-year high school so that they can graduate and be eligible to go to college, but they're in work-study all four years. So they're going to high school – uh, obviously meeting their academic requirements while they're in a work-study program, school-to-work program. There's no reason why you can't do that. I mean, there is so much wasted time in schools right now with irrelevant coursework, with irrelevant electives, where you could easily incorporate work-study, in some cases paid work-study, and you could get these kids working, and, and not only in a trade, but, for, but just out there in the work world working, exposing, being exposed to the work world and all the things the, uh, the responsibilities that go with it. So at the end of the day, the, the caller is absolutely right. There's no reason why we can't migrate to an education that provides those type of experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bonnie, yeah, I, Bonnie I, in the I, Crown Point, Indiana, go ahead. Hello, Bonnie, are you there? <laughs> yeah, I, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm bringing a... a- you know what, Bonnie? We got a very bad line. We're going to cut you off, not because of uh, anything that you want to say, but again, we just we need a quality line. So you may want to give us a call Bruce, back. By the way, in, in, go ahead. In light of the last, in light of the last question, may I please finish my curricular point? You've got <laughs> you've got fifteen seconds to do it. Oh, jeez. Well, I think that folks should be encouraged to learn at their pace and in, you know, with with, with encouragement from teachers. And I think we're going to see a a blossoming of methodologies for teachers to assist kids in the K-12 age bracket so that the ones who want to go to an IB and get an international baccalaureate, get three languages, they're going to do that. The ones that are going to be great in science and math and go to IIT, that's great. And then the kids who want to become Mercedes uh, repair people and make $180,000 a year, three years after high school, they're going to be able to do it. Gentlemen, That's- we have to pause. When we come back, we're going to talk about the, the job market. How difficult is it? Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist in your area. 
This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. We will get back to uh, Paul Vallis and uh, Chris Roebling in just a moment. But I want to spend some time here talking with our special guest. He's uh, Andrew Challenger. He's with Challenger Gray and Christmas. That is a uh, an outsourcing firm. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the turmoil in the workplace and uh, the way in which uh, the American economy is going to be affected by uh, uh, what's what's literally happening in the in the country right now. Andrew, I, I want to begin uh, because you you're getting in input from all over the country about what's happening uh, in in the workplace. Is is there a bigger problem in the workplace? with white-collar workers or with blue-collar workers, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a good question. The brunt of the pain that's happened over the last two and a half, three weeks in the labor force uh, has been really concentrated on lower-wage workers, uh, small businesses, particularly restaurants, bars, barbershops, uh, the types of, of jobs that cannot be done remotely and require foot traffic from customers uh, have been affected most dramatically. And, and the numbers are really big. Okay. Now, one of the things is that uh, for those people who accept uh, uh, a, uh, a, a loan from the government, which can turn into a grant, as I understand it, and there's a lot of money in, in the, in the package for this, that if they keep their employees on, on payroll, I think it's what through the end of June, if they keep their people on payroll, it becomes a grant. They don't have to pay that loan back. Is that a, is that a correct analysis or, or assessment of at least one of the government programs? That's a correct assessment of one of the programs. And I think it's a really important tool uh, that, that the government is deploying during this crisis to keep people, keep Americans marginally attached to a job uh, with benefits, with security, with a place to go back to once this crisis passes. And hopefully it will allow us to climb out of this hole, this deep hole, uh, more quickly uh, than, say, the 2008 financial disaster. And that's the payroll protection part of, of the of the government activity here, right? Called payroll yeah. protection? Yeah, that is the element of that $2 trillion package uh, that's aimed at small and medium-sized businesses to, to allow them to keep employees on their payrolls as opposed to furloughing or, or, or permanently laying them off. Does someone have to let the government know from the get-go whether their plan is to keep these people on them. I assume most of the businesses are going to say they want to keep these people on because they would like, uh, they would like this uh, bailout to be a, uh, to, to be a gift from the government. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a complicated thing, right? Uh, employers may get these loans with the absolute belief that they can keep employees on for a period of time. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns about how long this will persist. Employers uh, that can't bring in new business for three, four months are going to have a much more difficult time carrying employees through that time. Now, if, if I'm a small business person and uh, coronavirus has hit and the American economy is hit, and, and obviously I, my goal is to survive, but yet let's say that I've had a marginal business 
Let's say that I've been thinking about making some changes. Let's say that part of the changes that I want to make are some employees who either uh, aren't doing a good job or uh, I've been thinking about how I can move them around or retrain them. I mean, does it does it force uh, an employee, an employer to keep people around who ordinarily they may not want to keep around? And, you know, it's, it's a possibility. I think in this moment, employers that are taking on these loans uh, with the hope that they won't have to pay all or portions of it back are, are, you know, it's a, a reasonable thing to ask them to keep employees on through the period. Uh, you know, it helps. It's really the main goal of these funds. We want businesses to survive, but as opposed to uh, just giving cash directly to uh, uh, you know employees, these are, are loans meant to keep businesses open and also keep people on the payroll. Now, for those people who have lost their job or they, they work in, in non-essential jobs, uh, these are the people that are eligible for unemployment insurance. Is that correct? Yeah, so there's, there's uh, you know, a lot of those folks were already eligible for unemployment insurance, but the pool of people that are eligible uh, due to this new CARES Act has been expanded. Uh, so people that work part-time, gig workers, independent contractors, people that are self-employed are now eligible at, at certain levels for unemployment uh, who have never been eligible for unemployment before in the, in the history of the, the program. Do you think, and again, the, the, in, in, in this case, uh, there's an additional $600 above and beyond what they would normally get. Is that the figure where that comes in? Uh, I believe it's 600 for uh, some folks at the base level. Uh, then there, uh, it can go up if you have a partner, if you have dependents. Uh, there's incremental scales. Okay, up. all right. My my question, a quick a quick answer on this one. At some point, uh, do you think there's a lot of people out there wondering whether it's better to take unemployment or or stick with the job for another six months? Uh, you know, for for some people there is the possibility uh, that they may be uh, earning a little bit more to go on unemployment for right. a short period of time. I want to follow lose. up. Andrew, I want to follow up on that. When we come back, we're talking with Andrew Challenger. He'll be back on the other side of news, along with Chris Roebling and Paul Vallis. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. 
I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. But I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Here's to my back with our number two of Beyond the Beltway. Uh, this afternoon, I was uh, going through the uh, Internet, and I ran across a, a great video, and it was produced by the, the Surgeon General of the United States. And in the wake of all this discussion about wearing a mask, uh, not, the, not the medical kind, but suggesting that, you know, you get a, some cloth and you cover your mouth when you, when you go, go out of your house, if you have to go out of your house. And uh, it, it's a very succinct video. It runs just a little over a minute. And uh, th- this is what my mask looks like uh, now. And uh, you can see that it's somewhat fashion forward because it matches my hat. But let me just show you how simple it was. It starts with a piece of cloth, a square piece of cloth like this. This actually is a napkin. So uh, if you wanted to have one for each day of the week or one that matches your hat or your outfit, you could do it. But all you really need, it's, it's a folding concept. Uh, concept. And uh, it's, it's this and some uh, some rubber bands, some long rubber bands. And again, if you go to the website and you look up the Surgeon General of the United States, he will tell you how to make these masks. It took me about forty-five seconds to make it. Uh, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a couple more. 
I don't. I wanted to be in red today because our background here at the station is red. So again, this is what you could do: go through some napkins. You all probably have some napkins, but you could do it with an old, uh, uh, you know, T-shirt or, or, you know, whatever your favorite team is, and you can make a very unique uh, mask. So anyway, just a little advice, something you can do. Uh, we're talking uh, about uh, the future of, of jobs in America, and Andrew Christian, uh, who uh, with is with a he's a job expert, and uh, Paul Vallis from our previous segment also joins us, the former head of the Chicago Public School System and a national education uh, expert. And uh, I want to go back uh, to you, Andrew, and and just to clarify, uh, because I asked before the break whether you think that there will be some people out there trying to, to, to game the system and decide whether or not it's better to get unemployment or, or stay on the, the job with their employer. Uh, what would your advice be? Is, is this something that nobody should try to game this system at this moment? Yeah, certainly don't think people should try to game the system. Uh, I, I, you Inevitably, there may be a handful of people do, but uh, look, this is a, a very deep crisis, and the way to address it right now is to not be very picky with how we're sending people money. Uh, they're going with a tactic of carpet bombing the country with an infusion of cash at a time when it's unbelievably necessary, uh, and it's, uh, it, it seems to be the right approach to get us through at least the next month. And also, we should mention that if you are expecting a refund from the government uh, and and you are in their system for direct deposits, you are going to get your money first, and it's going to be on a on an, on an ascending order. In other words, if if you're a, a taxpayer who doesn't pay much in taxes, you're going to be in the first wave of checks that go out. And if you're a high earn, earner, uh, you'll still you know as long as you're under ninety nine thousand dollars. Uh, you're going to get your check, but it's going to be further. Uh, it's going to be a few weeks away, not necessarily in the next couple of weeks. And also, we should mention that uh, if you're if you're not into the federal system or you're not into the uh, uh, you know automatic deposit, direct deposit, uh, you could wait. According to published reports, you could wait several months because they have to send you. They've got to cut a specific check and send it out to you. So that's something else. Uh, you and your uh, uh, your your tax people should be figuring out and and not inundate uh, the government uh, uh, phone lines and email by asking some pretty basic questions that can easily be found out there. Paul Vallis, I want to go back to you for just a moment and bring you to, into our conversation uh, with Andrew because again, uh, you know, we talked about what teachers are doing. Uh, is is this a growth time to be a teacher? Or because of all the things that you talked about in hour number one, is this sort of a scary time to be a teacher? Because uh, there may be dramatic changes coming forward that uh, maybe uh, a teacher is not uh, interested in, in in learning a new way to do their job. Well, clearly, I think what you're going to see post-pandemic, because this won't be the last pandemic we have, and I think the country will always be prepared to... Uh, to uh, react aggressively based on the past experience. And there's going to be a political price to pay for this, uh, you know, how it evens out. There's going to be political consequences. But at the end of the day, I think it's a growth period. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of states uh, uh, expanding their teacher certification requirements to uh, ensure that uh, the teachers have the ability to deliver curriculum instruction online. Look, it's the wave of the future. 
uh, I mentioned that with the federal government about to invest $13 billion in education, which in effect raises Title I spending for school districts 80%. And most districts have stable revenues because they're getting property tax, stable property tax revenues. And, and the state can't reduce their funding or they don't get the federal funding in return. There's going to be an opportunity here to build the type of uh, remote learning infrastructure that will not only allow you to deal with these emergencies, and God knows I've been through a lot of them, but it will also give schools the capacity to offer uh, extended day instruction, extended year instruction. It'll, it'll give teachers the capacity to get into the homes to connect more effectively with parents. So, so I believe that, the, the, uh, that states are going to move to require that teachers who do become certified conditional for certification will require a certain mastery of that. Andrew, as you, as as you look at the people who are out of work now, um, what advice, what career advice would you give to them? Obviously they're worried right now about getting, uh, getting the unemployment check that's going to keep them going for hopefully a couple of months, but maybe not. I mean, there may be another stimulus package that's down the road. At least the president has hinted at that, but what advice would you be giving to those people that are out of work and uh, maybe they're maybe they're between thirty five and 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 fifty years old. Yeah, you know, I, no, I, I want to get the, I want to get Andrew's response to this. Yeah, that, and then we'll come back yeah. to you. Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. Yeah, in some ways, the the most important work that job seekers do hasn't changed, and that's networking with people uh, that can help you navigate your way into new positions. Uh, the way you do that has changed dramatically. You're not going to conferences. You're not handing out business cards. You're taking people to coffee. But there's a lot of people at home right now that have extra time on their hands that may be feeling more generous with their time. And if you're an unemployed person, it's a great time to reach out to former coworkers, people you know at companies that you'd like to work for, and ask for a little bit of their time to talk about their organizations, mm-hmm. what it's like to work there, and how at the end of this crisis they may be able to apply for positions. It's a, it's a great time to do uh, that type of networking. Or also to yep. uh, follow up uh, Paul Vallis's suggestion that maybe uh, maybe teaching is in your future. Paul, I didn't mean to cut you off, but go ahead. No, that's quite right. In, in fact, I'm glad Andy picked it up. Look, I mean, uh, the, the uh, um, you're going to have to develop the capacity to work online. Um, it's going to impact so many industries. And, and so, so people need to brush off those credentials. Look, you know, I do most of my work now online from a distance. So I, I, I've seen very little interruption in the type of work that I'm doing. In fact, I'm probably saving two hours a day in, in, uh, in not only commuting time, but also just in transportation costs and in parking and things like that. So, so clearly the, the economy is going to be changed permanently. And I think obviously the, the capacity to, rem- you're going to see the emergence of, of more occupations. More Paul, job we've got to go. Paul Vallis, thank you very much for joining us. And also Andrew Challenger uh, from uh, Challenger, Gray and Christmas. I'm Bruce Dumont. We will continue with new guests in a moment. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org.
A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago or in Evanston. Nice to have you with us this evening. 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number. And uh, we are now joined by uh, three uh, new guests uh, who are going to join us. First of all, Roberto Montano, who is a Democrat. He joins us uh, from Chicago. Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago also joins us. And a Republican joining us is Kenton McCarthy, and he joins us uh, from Arizona, although he looks like he's popped off the line here for a moment, but hopefully he'll be back. Roberto Montano, let me uh, bring you into the conversation because you, you're a you're a commercial real estate uh, guy. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Can, can you think of a worse profession to be in right now? Oh, I, I am honored to be in commercial real estate. There's so many people right now that need our help that my phone has not stopped ringing. Um, commercial well, let, me, real estate, let, me, let me just stop you for a moment. If people are going, if, if businesses are going out of business, why is it they, and or they're, they're learning to learn, uh, run their businesses maybe with fewer people. Why you know, is your business, business so great? Businesses are transforming how they business. There is a great, great Carnitas restaurant on 18th Street, and they had a line socially distanced down the street and business continues so now what they've done is they become more socially more social media savvy they're hiring marketing people and they're investing to grow market share right now people are picking up the phone and building mind share so they can get market share you know this came to pass it didn't come to stay and those folks that had the reserves are going to be in business in 60 90 120 days charles lipson from the university of chicago charles when you talk about society and how it's changing or how your life is changing, um, is the idea of going out uh, to dinner for with friends on a Saturday night uh, at a nice restaurant, are, is that a social experience that might not return in any large degree? I think it will return. I sure hope it does. I mean, it's a wonderful way uh, that we get together. Now, I also think that uh, we'll be using a lot more uh, media lo- like we're doing right now. And we'll find that some of the uses don't work out very well. I, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation in the last hour, uh, Bruce, about education. Uh, and I think that it's going to be harder probably in the younger grades to do a lot of that. And in the older grades, you'll have a lot more content. And I hope that some of the content will, that's being done now will be recorded so the rest of us can take advantage of it later. So I think there's going to be a lot of transformations, and I think it's going to be really hard to predict what it is. I, I was really struck by what Roberto just said. I, it completely surprised me that his phone would be ringing because people need commercial space. Yeah, that surprises me. Kenton McCarthy, you join us from uh, Arizona. Uh, nice I to do. see you again this evening. You were a guest uh, with a phone caller last week, and we'll get to your point in just a moment. But okay. generally speaking, w- when you look at the things that have, that have, that have changed, 
what are the changes in society that you think are going to uh, uh, become a way of life uh, if and when this pandemic is is over in the not too distant future? Gosh, if I only knew. Um, my here's my biggest concern. I you know I manage money for cities, so I'm essentially a risk manager. But the way society today is constructed is just a variety of complex systems that kind of interact, overlap, but feed on each other. What we've done is we've asked a certain section of complex systems to be shut down and yet have no impact on the other. My biggest concern is an economic collapse is typically followed by a sociological collapse. And when that social contract frays, then things start to unspool quickly, dramatically, and they're really hard to tether in. How does it break? Tell me what you mean by breaking down the social contact, compact. Social, social contract? Uh, yeah. Well, that, that's, that's what keeps us acting as normal citizens. We can be collectivists to a certain point. We can say, we're doing the right thing. We're doing, this is for the good of society. And at some point, we're going to say, you know what? I got to make changes for myself. When you have vast swaths of unemployed, lower class, unskilled people put out of work, telling them it's illegal to go to their job, at some point, they have to feed themselves. They have to feed their kids. So for them to act as collectivists and say, oh, I'm doing it for the, for the better good, or I'm just going to work for home. That's a stretch. Do we see, do do we see, and I want to start with you, uh, Charles, do we see, or, or do you fear a, uh, uh, a separation between the blue collar workers that, that Kenton was just talking about and, and the white collar uh, community? Um, I, what he's raising is a very interesting point. I do think that there could be a separation. I think a lot of this depends on how long it lasts. The first, uh, the first um, uh, relief bills are designed to go for what, a couple of months or something like right. that. I think if you have to go much beyond that, it's not just a question of financing. It's just a question of trying. It's very hard to keep people in their houses for that long. And and so forth. I think what's likely to happen is that there will also be a separation by age so that younger people will begin to go out and be allowed to go out. And it's proper for them to go out and older people who are more vulnerable or uh, uh, will be asked to stay home. Uh, Roberto, uh, we live in a city that is uh, we're supposed to all be staying home. Okay. And, and, and most of us are staying home unless they go out once a week uh, uh, to, to do a radio show or they go to a drive-in uh, restaurant uh, to, to get dinner once in a while. Are, are you surprised at the ease with which this monumental government dictate, at least in Chicago and the state of Illinois and, and many other states around the country, how relatively easy it has evolved with, with, with few uh, at least outbreaks of, of, of insurrection? You know, Bruce, in Chicago, we've had a couple of tragedies. Uh, we had our first police officer pass away. Right. And uh, I think that's pretty sobering. You know, here are our protectors. Now, he was a narcotics officer, undercover, not a lot of contact with the public, but one of our Chicago's, you know, finest. 
And those things just sober you up and you do your part. And I think that fundamentally, Democrat, Republican, whatever, we're all patriots. I think we all love our country. No, but, but, but uh, Roberto, that, that, that's, that's, that's great. And I, and I would hope that everybody would do it. But if, if we drove through uh, the Pilsen neighborhood or, or, or Little Village, which are Hispanic neighborhoods in Chicago, <laughs> would we see many people on the street? Would they be sitting on their porches? Would they be in their houses? And again, as the weather gets better and, and this thing is no longer, uh, you know, something that was just dictated by the mayor, is this something that... Uh, are people going to start rebelling against this? And I don't care whether they're in Chicago. They sure, could be sure, listening sure. in Los Angeles or, so, uh, you know, 40 other states around the country. You know, a lot of us went to church today virtually for the first time. St. Procopius, where I was baptized on 18th Street. I got to see my friends online. For, you know, it's kind of a strange thing, but these are the sacrifices. We're, we're, we're in, in Lent. And, and, you know, talk about Little Village, talk about Pilsen. A lot of us happen to be Catholic. And Catholicism, in my opinion, is about... Uh, love and serving one another. Um, we have to do what we have to do for the greater good. Um, now, in Pilsen, specifically where I live, I live across from Harrison Park. On, on Wednesday, for the first time ever, I saw police officers in the park. Now, nobody is congregating. I mean, the lake is different. Mm -hmm. In the neighborhoods, nobody's congregating. But people do go for a walk, they go for a run. Um, you're allowed to go out for a breath air, fresh air. Um, but my, my personal feeling is that businesses that are in the restaurants, for example, mm -hmm. they're going to have a tough time right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but a lot of folks oh, are adjusting. I want to go back to uh, uh, Kenton. Kenton, it, it's been suggested uh, by uh, Dr. Fauci that uh, this virus may come back again. It may come back it's in the about, fall. It's, it's, about, it's about time. Let me tell you one. Or it one, may come back the, next year. My, my, exactly. What happens you know how, if it comes Bruce, back you know, wait, wait, again? Do you, do you know how long the Justinian virus lasted that took out the Byzantine Empire? No. 225 years. Okay. Now, they didn't, have, they didn't have scientists like we do. and They didn't have central bankers running scared like we do today. So this idea, my, here's, my biggest fear is we're going to go in lockdown. And we're going to put millions out of business forever. We're going to fundamentally alter the business landscape and the social landscape. And all of a sudden, in June or July or August, we're going to say, oh, we got to do it again. You can't do this again. This is, this is national suicide. I, mean, I, I tweeted to you this afternoon. I think short term, Anthony Fauci is the biggest threat to what remains of our society, our economy, and our democracy. Elaborate. If, if he's given the, the privilege or the honor or the dictate to say how long and to what degree he's going to shut down our economy, that's going to ruin everything. The economy is the, economy is the sinews that keep everything bound together, and they're fed with money going to and fro. So you're interrupting that. You're going to have these complex systems start to break down. You can't put those back together in August. Okay, that is a that's a very uh, combustible statement. I wouldn't expect I anything less from you. Uh, but again, it also makes us all think. And when we come back, I'm going to start with you, Charles. When we come back, I want you to sort of follow up on on Kenton's uh, uh, comments. And that is uh, the power uh, the power of the moment, the power of the microphone 
uh, by Dr. Anthony Fauci. He has the ear of the president, uh, at least as of the moment, uh, and I want to get your reaction and everybody else's reaction. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. back in Evanston, Illinois. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. 1-800-723-8289. For those of you who are either uh, obviously listening on radio stations around the country or watching us on our Facebook live post, we're uh, we're not we're not live on YouTube at the moment Uh, that because of our new configuration that is on a delay basis. But again, you can see this show on YouTube later on the night. Uh, But again, if you're listening on Facebook live, uh, you are you are watching us at uh, Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. That's our Facebook uh, live page. But again, if you are a regular listener, or if you are a regular participant on this program, you have been a guest on this program. I encourage you to go to Beyond the Beltway Fans. Look up Beyond the Beltway Fans. It is a separate Facebook page. And you can join us. I mean, ask to be asked to join, and I will accept everybody because that is about continuing a relationship with people that you've heard and seen on this program. And not only will you continue to see and hear them on this program, but also periodically they're very active on Facebook. They write very great essays. Uh, Kenton McCarthy is one. Charles Lipsum is is prodigious in, in what he has to write. And this is another opportunity to stay in touch with the people that you hear and see on this program. And they they publish their stuff at, uh, at, at the Beyond the Beltway fan page. So if you've not done that, I would expect hopefully lots of people are going to do that after the broadcast this evening. And again, whether it's radio or television, this is an opportunity for us. And again, in this in this time when we have to find new ways to communicate... Uh, I'd also be very interested in knowing how uh, how you're reacting to sort of the uh, the evolution of this program. And you know, for for 39 and a half years, we had uh, four people sitting around a, a table and having a wonderful conversation. Uh, and again, uh, we we lost the ability to do that when the Museum of Broadcast Communication was shut down over a COVID virus. So now we're doing it from a radio station. 
but there's nobody else here, no other guests with me here at the radio station. But they're, they're guests that you know. We have them from around the country as well as from around Chicago. And again, uh, Kenton McCarthy is from uh, Arizona, joins us tonight. And we had guests uh, uh, last week who joined us from California. So again, uh, we're, we're changing. I'd, I'd love to get your assessment as to whether you think this new format is working or not. I don't, I don't, I, I, I can't say there's not too much uh, I can do to change it. But again, it would be good to hear uh, whether you feel whether the new format is actually uh, fewer guests and, and uh, we, we change them more often. I'd like to know how you are. Uh, are reacting to that. Let's go back to Charles Lipson. I asked a question be before the break, and, and that is, what if this becomes a cycle for us in America? Uh, Kenton basically said he doesn't think there's a way we can survive that with the dictates that are coming out of Andy Fauci uh, and, and the ability of the president at least to uh, uh, you know, uh, agree with him on, on many scientific points. Your reaction, Charles? between two kinds of bounce back. One would be if we, let's say, let started uh, letting people out next week and then had a second wave that came through. And that's essentially what seems to be happening in China. Another would be if uh, we let people out in a prudent way, but it comes back in a seasonal way like the flu. And I think that the good news there is that there are a number of treatments that look very promising. And then beyond that, there are some vaccines and not just one vaccine. There are a whole number of candidate vaccines that are going to be tested. But I just saw today uh, yet another um, treatment that's already on the market. This one for parasites Mm -hmm. has been found in Australia to be very effective in the test tube. Since it's already out there, they can almost immediately begin testing it for safety and and effectiveness on humans. Um, I would say one more thing about the bureaucracies, okay. and, uh, Anthony Fauci and so forth. It's a, it's a common feature in all these bureaucracies that they are focused on one thing. So the health bureaucracy is focused on health. And the economic bureaucracies are focused on that. And what I've been impressed by, actually, in the Trump administration is pushing the health bureaucracies to move quickly because they don't normally want to do that. They want to button it down and have everything nailed down. And it requires that. But the big decision that is coming is the economic reopening and how they're going to do that. I want to follow up on that, but I want to go to Roberto to get his a response to what you've just said and also what Kenton said. And that is, uh, do you agree that uh, the health bureaucracy, which everyone is hailing right now, these are the new, these are the New York City firefighters and police officers, and everybody wants to hail them because of the tremendous job that they are doing. But again, uh, at, at some point, uh, if, <laughs> if the patient lives, but the hospital closes, I mean, are, are, are you worried about that, Roberto? I have good news for, uh, for everybody, which is that there is a study that came out on the 26th of March, just about last Thursday yeah. at MIT. And the, and it, it studied specifically this question and what they, what they, what they deduced, these are MIT people, neither you know, they're academics, I guess, but they're neither economists. Well, they are economists, but they're looking at both, both sides, balancing both. What it said is that stronger pandemic responses 
yield better economic recoveries based off of the 1918 flu pandemic uh, data that they had. And so th there's just, here, here's a quote, quote, we find no evidence that cities that acted more aggressively in public health terms performed worse in economic terms. This is assistant professor at MIT Sloan School of Management. So it's not like the public health school. This is a business school. Now, in this particular case, one of the things is that obviously what has emerged here is uh, you've had the federal government as represented by the president. You've had governors that have popped, it, popped up, uh, some more critical of the federal uh, administration than others. Certainly our governor here in Illinois has been the, the poster child for that in recent weeks. But my, my question is, so we're, we're dealing between those that believe in states' rights or what's happening at the state level, and, and the news media, which has an opportunity to take, to take a side here, they're taking the side of the governors because they will give the, the, the federal government and Trump will get no, no credence at all, whether it's Trump suggesting that hydrochloroquine you know, might work. I mean, they banged him on that. They're not going to give him an inch in their coverage of this story. So my question to you is, and I'm going to ask Kenton, we do have nine governors at this moment, unless they've changed before we went on the air. We have nine governors that have not shut down their states. They're all Republicans. Most of them are grouped, you know, I mean, North Dakota, South Dakota, and and uh, uh, Iowa and those. I want, no, I'm going to come back to you, but I want to get Kenton's sure. response here. Is the next several months or several even weeks, because, again, what, what lies ahead, according to the federal government and Dr. Fauci, is, I mean, all hell is going to break loose uh, in the next couple of weeks. Well, we I, a, you we, know, are we setting up a situation where we're going to look at the results of, of, of who dies in those nine states and say, you know what, those governors were right? If you, know, if you ignore my tweets like almost everyone else does, including myself, <laughs> you, you'll notice that I, I said um, a pandemic is much too serious a matter to be entrusted to doctors because they look through a universal lens, a, a morally noble lens, but they don't see the collateral damage or the externalities. Um, also, the first casualty in a pandemic is context. So we're trying to, we're trying to force feed a universal decision or strategy with no previous history, no owner's manual, and think it's going to work out. And yet we do. Federalism does allow governors to make certain calls in their own state. We've had a food fight here in Arizona the last two weeks like you would not believe. And you like that. I mean, you're, 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 you're a federalist. I, 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 have, I have no problem with Doug Ducey laying out his, his side. And yeah. then I have no problem with Senator Cinema bleeding 20 hours a day on Twitter yeah. that he's doing it wrong and he's, she's saving lives. Therefore, he isn't. We've got a binary argument is you either follow along with this draconian response because we're saving lives or you're killing people. Those are the only two options allowed today. I don't buy that. Okay, but uh, Charles, back to you. When, when we look at three months from now, if we're all here and, and we come back again, three months from now, are we going to be saying to these nine governors, are we going to be saying you guys called it right? You didn't shut your states down. You may have had some deaths, but they were not they were not catastrophic level like like New York. And that you guys you gutted it out, and and your decision 
was the right decision for your state. May not be the right decision for the rest of the country, but it was the right state for your uh, for your state. It was the right decision for your state. Are we? Gonna I think there? that I think that Trump has done the right thing in not trying to federalize everything and do a one size fits all. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the uh, when the 55 mile an hour speed limit was imposed across the country and people out in uh, Montana and Wyoming just mm -hmm. thought it was ludicrous right. because it was. Now, the governors that haven't shut their states down, they'll have to bear responsibility for that. Right. But I'll, I'll wager this. If there's a hot spot that breaks out in Pierre um, in the Dakotas or yeah. Bismarck or something, they'll immediately act. I, I don't doubt that they'll do that. Uh, but I think that the the uh, the media point that you made is absolutely right. I mean, Trump will either make an error as far as the mainstream media goes by opening up too soon or opening up too late. He'll not be able to get it right as far as they're concerned. What? I think that that's just sort of baked into the cake and we just need to move on from it. When we come back, we're going to hear from Roberta Montagna with the rest of our panel and we'll also hear from phone calls. We've got a lot of them on the line. We'll bring them into the conversation when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. <laughs> 